Hi, how's it going? Welcome back to Hell Yeah Horror. Sorry that this episode is late. It is late because I spent all yesterday and all this morning watching screaming tutorials on YouTube so that I can finally get good enough at screaming so that maybe an emo boy will like me back. Before this episode starts, I deem it necessary to say that there is a film out in theaters that is so good that I feel the obligation to urge you to see it before it leaves. It's called Stop Motion. It's one of the best horror films I've seen recently, and I think you should see it if it's at your local theater. Um, Of course, this is not sponsored because literally this podcast is just me and you, but if you can, I would say to see it. Welcome back again to another podcast episode, aka your favorite alpha male incel Reddit 4chan podcast where we commiserate about the woes of being a male and never having felt the soft, gentle caress of a woman, like being held close to her warm bosom and then being diagnosed for schizophrenia based on your zodiac sign. Today we're talking all things Todd Salons. Actually, it's Todd Salens, but I refuse to call him that. Sometimes a female intuition is the best. Sometimes uh, the woman's intuition knows more than the person itself, and that's the situation. We're not going to say Todd Salons. That's not rhyming. That's not cute. We're going to say Todd Salons. But I just want to put that out there so that you do know that, yes, I do know that I am mispronouncing it, but also, yes, I'm not going to change it. <laughs> um, Todd Salons has an utterly horrifying collection of films that truly revel, revel in the beauty, or should I say, filth of the middle class. But before we dissect this little frog, we got to introduce him to you. His name's Ribbit. He's a slimy green little feller, currently wearing a nice little tuxedo. Excited to meet you all. And then we're going to slice him open. There's a high likelihood here that you might have heard of Todd Salons, but I... I don't know. I feel like that's kind of, you know, a wild guess. I d- when I look at his films on Letterboxd, they don't really have a ton of viewers on them. His most popular film, Happiness, has the most views, which is 100,000 on Letterboxd. But even then, that's not a super large number. And that's his most popular film. And then the more, the more obscure films have around 10,000 viewers and members on Letterboxd. So there's a high likelihood that you might ne- have never heard of him. He recently had, like, in the past few years, I think during COVID, when everyone was mentally ill and inside, <laughs> people really wanted to watch disturbing things, you know, me too, and that's where they found out about happiness, and then it sort of had its airplay on TikTok, YouTube, wherever the film freaks congregate, but there's also a high likelihood that you've never heard of him, which is exciting for me, because I'm a pretentious sweetheart, and I love showcasing my pretentiousness. So it's great. Let's just pretend like you haven't ever heard of him, and then let's just pretend like I'm introducing him to you now. Okay? Can we agree to that, please? Thank you. What I love about Ari Aster, I love about Todd Salons. I think he is so odd and so unique in a way that I really haven't found in another director. You know, I said that he's reminiscent of Ari Aster, or I guess vice versa. Ari Aster has some reminiscent things that remind me of Todd Salons, but no one is Todd Salons, and I think that he adds a very interesting and unique perspective into the film Geist. So today we're going to be focusing on more of his films. In some podcasts, I talk about one film and then I analyze it, but we're going to be focusing more on... um, breadth than depth in this because we'll be talking about three films majorly going into one of them and then analyzing what all of this means but enough with the casualties let's get into the travesties 
Todd Salonza's first feature-length film was Welcome to the Dollhouse and premiered at Sundance in, I believe, 1995, where it won the Grand Jury Prize. This film introduced Todd Salonza to the film industry. In his later films, though, he still maintained releasing films independently, which I appreciate. I love independent film, and I think it's something that needs to be preserved. But what I appreciate about him is that he hasn't lost his sparkle and has not let a studio that he is signed with make him lose his sparkle, which is very admirable. You know, not to hate sellouts, but, you know, if you want to put those words in my mouth, I'm not spitting them out, if you know what I mean. Welcome to the Dollhouse is a black comedy following a young pubescent girl named Dawn Wiener, whose life is as unfortunate as her name. (laughs) And she's boring and sort of just in a, you know, regular family. She's going through the strife of growing older and dealing with bullies at school and just lives a very unfortunate life um, until she grows affection for an older boy who is in a band. I mean, we've all been there. I, I don't have brothers, but a little part of me always wanted a brother so that I could crush on his friends. Older brother, not younger brother. <laughs> I don't have brothers, though, so that's never going to happen. Let's, like, and, and that's kind of, like, that's a fantasy for real, because, like, the idea of a guy liking me, oh, that would never happen, you know? Um, and what you immediately find with Todd Salonza's films is that they are very dry and they are not directly funny. That doesn't mean that they aren't funny. I find them to be very funny, but the humor is not really intentional. The humor is more derived from absurdity or the uncomfortability of certain situations. It's, I love absurdity in film. I love films that are odd. His films are odd, not like a racer head odd, but just very uncomfortable and very dry and sardonic and I it works very well his humor is not derived from the script there's no real jokes written in the script but we just it's like a schadenfreude response where you find fun humor in the uncomfortable situations or in the devastating situations and that's the same with welcome into the dollhouse you know it's a very uncomfortable film and there are very many scenes of taboo topics you know a subplot in this film involves dawn becoming romantically intertwined with her bully and it's extraordinarily uncomfortable to see such a young little girl surrounding herself and i mean it's i mean i can't even really blame her in the film she falls not even falls in love she starts to date her bully and it's not even because she likes him it's just because he's around and she has a crush on this older teenager steve rogers and it's kind of funny because like Steve Rogers in the film has a girlfriend and the girlfriend is like talking to a 13 year old girl like Dawn like you will never get him it's like girl you're 17 I really if if you think that a 13 year old is your competition that's horrifying (laughs) but because Dawn doesn't get to go with her older teen crush she sort of just is like well I guess he's here and starts to become romantically involved with her bully Brandon And Brandon is just a disgusting piece of shit. I mean, he's a child. It feels wrong to speak that way of a child. But he is just disgusting. Like, he threatens to rape Dawn after she calls him, like, I think the the R word. I I refuse to say that. But, you know, he threatens to rape her when she neglects to do what she says. And then confesses his, and like, kisses her and confesses his love for Dawn. Which I feel resonant with because when I was younger... And I feel like every young woman and every young girl was told the same thing, that when a guy is being really rude to you, it's because he likes you. As if any of that makes that okay. I feel like that's just enabling mistreatment of young girls and then, you know, 
allowing domestic violence to happen. It's like, oh, he just likes you. A guy who's being a complete dickhead to you, he just likes you. It's like, okay, great. How do, what about how I feel? Like, that's not okay. It's not okay to threaten rape on someone that you like. My God. But, and and this is like the funniest part of the film, in my opinion, because (laughs) Brandon, who is like 12 years old, gets arrested for, you know, drug trafficking, I guess. (laughs) which is just I mean it's very sad but it's also very funny to me like the idea of like a a child in handcuffs he gets arrested for selling drugs and Don just kind of loses everything you know I think that she's always felt a little wayward and then gathered herself and you know collected herself near these people who gave her any form of attention whether or not it was good or bad um and then things just really start to go downhill and what's so interesting about Todd Solondz's films is that they really don't follow like a typical story arc you know I think that the most dramatic and the most intense things happen at the beginning of the film and then at the end of the film which I mean I guess you could say is reminiscent of a story arc but you don't really get satiated with um Todd Solondz's films because right at the end of this film It's crazy. So much happens in the end. Dawn's little sister gets kidnapped by a neighbor, a pedo neighbor, and then it's like, oh, okay, the film's over. (laughs) Dawn's even worse than we first saw her. You know, her sister's kidnapped by a pedo neighbor, and then Dawn joins the choir club, and that's it. And so, I mean, it's very dark. It's very unfortunate, and that's just kind of where it is. But I feel like that's what really sets him so much apart. I mean, this story is a bleak one. And, and pretty much all of Todd Solondz's films' story and stories are very bleak and very unsatisfying. But I think they're refreshing because they're realistic. You know, our lives don't follow a story arc. I feel like when unfortunate things happen to us, they happen in multiples. And it's not like, oh, here's an inciting incident and then a climax. You know, you don't see your life that way. And I think that that's how Todd Salons writes as well. He doesn't write for a story arc. He writes with how real life happens. And, you know, I think there's this quote. It's like, well, life happens on the day to day, which is, you know, exactly how this is in the story. You know, there's no anticipation. Like life does not wait for things to get better so that bad things can happen. You know, I, I feel like when things, when it rains, it pours. You know, and I think that's what happens in his films as well, is that it's just, it's, a, in, it's just life. You know, nothing is indicative of a grand scheme. There's no, you know, overarching message for anything. It's just how it is. And I feel like that is a very unique and standpoint and viewpoint that we really don't get very often. You know, unfortunate things happen for no real reason. It just works out that way. And it's unfortunate and fruitless as a viewer, and yet it feels so refreshing because that's how it is in real life. You know, everything poor happens all at once is how it seems, and I think that Todd Salons writes that way as well. And not even to be nihilistic, but the best things happen to the worst people, and vice versa, the worst things happen to the best people. And that is a truth itself very resonant for many people, and Todd Salons writes that way, and acknowledges that which we'll get more into it into the analysis but I think it's really maintained his humanity and down-to-earth nature I mean he's not a ginormous director but he has made a lot of successful films 
and he has never lost his essence of what makes him human. He has a very nuanced view of the middle class, and I'm not sure of his financial status, but whereas many other directors can sort of lose their relatability, Todd Salons is still very much aware and articulate about how to discuss these things happening to the middle class, which I think is very impressive. Out of all of Salons' films I've seen, which is pretty much all of them, Welcome to the Dollhouse is the least remarkable in my opinion. I mean, it's his first film. You know, I think it's the most amateurish. I think that most directors probably follow the same, that their first film's the most amateurish. And I think it's very interesting because out of all of his films, this is like the second most popular out of all of them, and it's definitely not my favorite. I find it to be lacking of a greater moral message. I don't find it to be as resonant or relatable um, as his other films. And I've read like the comments and it seems like other people, usually other teen girls, might disagree with that and that devastates me. <laughs> but I mean, it's still a good film. It's just not my favorite out of his. But I think it's been very impressive that with this film and with the rest of his films, he's continued to stay within a certain message. And some might people, some people might get frustrated. It's like, oh, he's continually harping on the same thing or deriving meaning from the same thing. But to me, I find it to be cohesive and it fits his aesthetic and vision and instead creates, you know, a transcendental theme that can be hard to establish with just one viewpoint. I mean, the middle class is such a large group of people that I think that a lot of people can resonate with certain themes within it, but the middle class isn't a monolith, despite kind of being one. <laughs> we'll talk about that more later, though. Well, after the success of Welcome to the Dollhouse, three years later, Todd Salons went on to create his magnum opus, Happiness. When it was released, this film was relatively underground. I think it aired at Venice Film Fest or something like that. Um, and then it recently had a resurgence online, like I said, during the pandemic. But even before then, a lot of people found out about this through disturbing movie lists. You know, I think it's cool to see film buffs, you know, go online and compile these things. There's a lot of creators that I like that will that talk about films that even I refuse to watch. Um, and I think it's a cool to sort of have that relationship and a community with each other. You know, I don't love film bros, but sometimes they can be cool and good. Um, and this is, again, an interesting scenario for me because I find it very rare to have the most popular film of a director's to be the best, and yet in this case, it's exactly that situation. It feels wrong to laud, you know, the most popular film, but in this case, it's, it's the best. You know, there's really something so magical about this film, and I cannot quite nominate it to a certain thing, but I hope that, you know, by discussing it, I'm able to articulate it better. Um, if you haven't seen Happiness, I strongly urge you to go see so. If you can stomach these sort of topics, um, we're going to be talking about pedophilia and child molestation. So if that type of thing bothers you, then I'd say to not watch this film and maybe even to leave this podcast. But if you can handle it, I would say to do it. And I don't know, I feel like I, I definitely categorize films of the disturbing nature to be different from other people. But in the grand scheme of things, this film is not really that disturbing. It's uncomfortable, rightfully so. There are things in this film that are very perverse and edgy and disgusting. But to me, it doesn't seem distasteful. When I think of a disturbing film, I think of films that are just, you know, inherently exploitative. I think that they're just horrible without 
reason and remorse. So I'm thinking cannibal holocaust, you know, that actually killed real animals to do it. I'm thinking of Sala, which actually had real child actors get nude and partake in scenes of child exploitation. In this situation, I think that this is a disturbing film, but I don't find it to be vomit worthy. I don't find it to be unfounded or inordinately horrible. I think that what makes this film so interesting is that it is such a dark film and yet it feels so human. It still remains to be very familiar and resonant despite its extreme, you know, messages and I find that to be very impressive. So again, if you can see it and if you can stomach it, then I would really suggest that you do so because it's very powerful and a viewing experience disparate to any other film that I've ever seen, including Salon's other films. If you go on any disturbing movie list, you're going to find this film. I would say to skip the rest and watch this one because this is, I've seen pretty much every disturbing film on those lists and this is one that's actually good and actually worth your watch. But Happiness is a film that follows the lives of three sisters, Trish, Ellen, and Joy, Jordan. They come from an upper-middle-class family, and the film follows their misfortunes that exist through finding love, family, and meaning. So Trish Jordan is the oldest sister of the family and is living like the perfect American life. She lives with her husband, Bill, who's a psychiatrist, and their three children. Helen Jordan is the middle sister. She's a successful writer, and she's somewhat of like a sex icon and a seductress. She's a writer. Everyone thinks she's so intelligent and just so beautiful and, you know, can't be tamed. She can't be tied down. Everyone wants to be her, but Helen hates this because she hates being so loved. She hates being so perfect. It really devastates her that she is just so perfect and so young and so supple and so covetable, and gosh, that's what a hard life to live, you know? And then the youngest sister, Joy, I would kind of say is the central protagonist in the film. And we start the film seeing her, um, where she is breaking up with her boyfriend, Andy, who was a complete schlub. And in every single one of Salonza's films, there's a complete schlub. Um, In this film, there's two, maybe even three, if you could argue. But Andy is one of them. And he is on a date with Joy. And Joy is like, I'm sorry, I don't think I can do this anymore. So they break up. And then we later find out that he killed himself. <laughs> Sorry to laugh, but I mean, like, okay, that, that was wrong to laugh. But he killed himself because of being rejected. As you can see, we're starting off very strong and jovial. Very lighthearted stuff. Joy decides that she needs a major life change and that she will leave her telephone marketing job and actually do something fulfilling with it. And there's a subplot involving the parents. I find it to be the least interesting, but it involves the parents, the Jordan patriarchs, and how they're getting separated but not divorced, and how they're trying to find love outside. And I don't really find it to be that interesting, so I'm not really going to be talking about it here. Um, But, yeah, happiness starts at the end, pretty much. You know, I think a lot of films start in a place and then end in a place very dissimilar from where it started. Salonza's films are not like that at all. <laughs> I mean, once the film starts, it's really the beginning of the end. Everything starts to unfurl and everything starts going on downhill. 
Um, after we meet Joy and now her deceased ex-boyfriend, we then see Bill at his job where he's working as a psychiatrist. He is helping a patient named Alan, who is played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, and Alan is regaling about his sexual deviance issues involving fantasies about rape, bondage, and murder with a neighbor. I am not too well-versed in Philip Seymour Hoffman's career, but I think that this film really established his... I guess he was, I think he was sort of pigeonholed into who she, he should be as an actor. And even if you look him up, I think people will write about him and just how amazing he was at like playing a complete and disgusting person. And in this film, it's no different. But I'm not exactly sure if this is the first film where he's done that. But he does a good job in this film. And I mean, it's, we'll talk about it like some acting choices later. But I think it's impressive to sort of put yourself in the situation and I, I don't know how I would feel like if I was an actor and if I was sort of only typecast as like this type of character I don't know how I'd feel I'd kind of be insulted it's like okay well we get it I'm disgusting (laughs) but yeah Alan's having some issues and having some really intense sexual fantasies involving his neighbor which is no other than Helen the writer who everyone just loves and wants to be around well he is just a fucking weirdo and also has this amazing hobby of his where he goes through his phone book just to pull like a ghost face and instead of it's like it's not like what's your favorite scary movie it's like how wet are your panties you know so it's it's just a little bit different Um, but then we learn more about Bill. After he gives Alan his appointment, Bill then goes to his own psychiatrist, where he is then sharing his own personal issues about a reoccurring dream that he's having, um, including mass murdering many people in a park. And then he also brings up the fact that he doesn't want to have sex with his wife anymore. Now, I don't know about you, but I've had my fair share of psychiatry, psychiatry appointments and referrals, and if you didn't know, you have to walk a very thin thin line to not end up in grippy socks. I feel like this situation sort of just examines those who we see as moral arbiters in society. I think that it's similar to a priest, in my opinion, in which that we see priests and church leaders to be very wise, to be very important community leaders. And I think that the way I see it too is that people who work in mental health do so because they're more mentally well than everyone else. You know, I love my therapist so much because she is so wise beyond her years. And I think that in this film, it sort of plays on that too and that sort of perversion that these are the people that we send unwell people too and the people who are helping those who are unwell are also unwell themselves and I think it's an interesting you know framework and sort of stance to take but also just Bill's you know I don't know what you'd say his priorities and what he talks about and his appointment is so funny to me like yeah I wish I could murder everyone and my pp no longer gets hard for my wife like Those are the two things plaguing you the most. (laughs) I think that one of them is a much more pressing matter than the other. But, you know, like, literally every guy who's, like, anti-porn is literally only anti-porn because his penis no longer works. It's not like he cares about women. So, am I really surprised? No. (laughs) But Salons obviously includes these lives um, and these viewpoints to, you know, examine the social arbiters 
Um, and I think it's very interesting to have Bill as a character and to be a psychiatrist because he is a fucked up person in the film. In the next scene, after he goes to a psychiatry appointment, Bill goes to his car and masturbates to a kid magazine while chilling images of children are walking behind him getting into their own car. And this is the most disturbing scene of the film, in my opinion, because it is just such nonchalant depravity. You know, the idea of this guy cranking his wink in the backseat of his car to, it's not child porn, but in this case, it's child sex abuse material, and there are children literally walking behind him. You know, this is a public place, and he feels so flagrant to do this in public, and that is chilling. That makes my stomach drop. And I really want to applaud the actor who plays Bill, Dylan Baker, because not only is Dylan Baker a great actor, he's been in films like Dream Scenario most recently, he was in Trick or Treat, he's done a lot of other stuff too, but obviously he's an amazing actor, but I can't say that I would be comfortable doing the same. I think that in this film this was a necessary choice, and I think that it explores something very taboo in a very important manner. But I, I can't believe, I wouldn't say that I would do it myself. You know, if I had the opportunity to portray a pedophile, I don't think I would do that. And so it takes a lot of metaphorical balls to do so. And I think that he does a really good job in this film as well. And what makes this film, again, you know, it's, it's interesting and dazzling for so many reasons. But I think that what makes this film so amazing, too, is just that it's very uncomfortable but in a delicate manner, if that makes sense. I think that there's a difference between being inherently exploitative with edgy material and being uncomfortably comfortable with sharing themes with grace and care, which happiness aligns itself with the latter. I know it sounds antithetical to say you can handle edgy themes with grace and care, but happiness does so. I mean, it's edgy and it's, it's in your face and there's a lot of things that are very uncomfortable and yet it doesn't feel harmful like I don't worry about the well-being of anyone here which I can't say the same for solo (laughs) you know I think that it handles the material that is uncomfortable but it does not ever portray any illicit act involving children on camera you know it's insinuated it's not ever shown which not only preserves the necessary hush hush around this wretched act, but can also provide for a more horrifying, uncomfortable, and introspective experience for the viewer. Many times, if you're writing, you're going to hear the same, you know, show, don't tell. But in the film, with film and with disturbing film, I find the latter to be true. That you should tell and not show, or imply but not show. And that's why I find Solo to be so abhorrent because it implicates actual children in the process rather than just, you mean, there's a difference between like explaining why something is bad and then partaking in the bad thing. We've talked about that a lot on this podcast and I think that this is the same thing and happiness so thankfully does not follow that. After Bill's unspeakable act, he goes home to his wife and children where his son asks him, you know, what the word come means, obviously indicating that Billy has been exposed to very inappropriate topics for his age. Um, And then Bill gives Billy an in-depth foray into exactly what come is and where it comes from. Um, You know, obviously it's good 
to be honest with children about their body parts, it's been proven that giving children the language to talk about their you know, body parts and their experiences really can help children ask for help if they are in an uncomfortable child exploitation situation. And so it's so important to give them that language. But that's not what's happening here. (laughs) There's a difference between saying to children, yeah, women and, and females have vaginas and males have penises. And if someone touches you down there, you need to get a trusted adult who can help you with that. There's That's very different than saying, son, come here. Let me teach you how to crank your wink. But, you know, Bill's just the father of the year. And he just doesn't want his son to be sad anymore. (laughs) Jesus Christ. After the scene, we see more scenes of Alan continuously being a sexual menace, um, continuing giving free phone sex operations with any woman he can get on the phone, including Joy. It's kind of interesting how this film goes full circle, and it really does. It's interesting how sort of all of the characters are interconnected in multiple ways, and that sort of just improves upon the lore and the relatability of things because everything's connected which is a very interesting thing to do it's sort of like mini vignettes that all sort of meet in the middle which i appreciate um well alan calls joy and joy is too naive to realize that the man talking to her about her panties is not a friend and there's a hilarious line of course unintentional in this film and it's horrible that it makes me laugh but it it does make me laugh and it goes alan says is on the phone with joy and it increasingly gets more and more weird and alan goes not your jeans underneath check what's underneath are you are you wet is your pussy wet (laughs) this literally cracks me up because it's so even even if you don't receive like a, a horrible phone sex call so many guys are like that Like, you see so much bullshit online. I remember seeing, like, this Twitter thread about men speculating about how good it feels for women to to put in a tampon. Okay, dude, just because it involves your genitals doesn't mean it's a sexual... Like, is you getting kicked in the balls making you come? I I just... It's such a funny thing to... (laughs) It makes me laugh. And if you can see this scene, you should go see it because it's pretty funny. But after being down on her luck, Joy is like, okay, well, I need to do something more with my life. So she goes to work at an immigrant adult education center where she meets a Russian man, Vlad, whom, of whom she becomes immediately enamored with. And it seems like he reciprocates to Joy. And I think the saddest thing about Joy is just that she's so naive and so unaware. She's so sweet and just so innocent and continually gets fucked over. And that's just sad. You know, in the end with Vlad, he really only wants her for sex and money and takes both of them with her. And Joy even finds out that he's married and that, you know, the entire time he has just been asking for money. And in the end, he even calls her a stupid American as if like, yeah, she's in the wrong for it. So poor Joy. In a scene, Bill is at um, Billy's Little League game and he is staring about staring at Billy's friend and colleague, Johnny. Later in the film, we see Bill and Johnny's father eating together at a restaurant and they're butting heads because Johnny's father is afraid of Johnny being gay and he claims that his son is too feminine. Obviously, obviously, this is a crock of shit. 
okay? <laughs> I don't know why men and homophobes alike just believe that, like, young boys are supposed to emulate He-Man. It's just, it's, it's baffling to me. <laughs> All children, regardless of their sex, are born curious about everything. Liking dolls and lip gloss doesn't make you a girl or gay. And liking robots or blocks or cars doesn't make you a, a boy or lesbian. And I think it's this interesting juxtaposition at play where it rightfully paints both men as being wrong. I mean, both of these men are wrong because they're both ascribing a sexuality unto a child. When children aren't inherently born with a sexuality already in play. You know, obviously, if you're gay, you're born gay and that's innate and that can't change. But I don't believe, and I've read a lot of interesting theory about it, I don't believe that children are naturally born sexual or they're not naturally born feeling attracted to others. I believe that attraction is gained. Um, and if you watch Tara Mooney on YouTube, she has a really interesting video about it. And just talking about how, you know, being gay and being, you know, a same-sex attracted person, it's immutable. It cannot be changed. But we're not in- inherently born with a sexuality already at play. And so it's interesting to see this sort of conversation and dichotomy at play. Um, and then that night, Billy and Johnny have a sleepover, where at this sleepover, Bill puts sleeping powder into a tuna sandwich for Johnny and then rapes Johnny off screen. And it's very chilling. Of course, you don't see anything, thank God. Um, but it's really horrible. Um, and the entire aftermath is just disgusting to think about a child having to go through that is just horrible and you know I think that it's important to understand like just in this film that people who we care for people who we trust people in our community who we find to be very intelligent and important are still very much capable of committing horrible 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 atrocities and Bill is no exception you know, you think he has all, he's a psychiatrist, a beautiful wife, he has three children, wealthy and rich. Anyone can be a horrible person. They're mainly men. <laughs> That's statistically true. But I think it's important to that this film gets across is that the most normal people you know probably partake in the most abhorrent acts of, you know, violence. And we'll talk about that more at the end, but it's a very interesting and very human thing that salons does and that's been like the most devastating thing for me about getting older is just you know when I was younger I thought adults were just so amazing and that they had everything handled and now that I'm older I just realize you know I'm an adult I realize just how horrible a lot of people are and you know the people who I thought knew everything and who I thought all had it planned out and great it's not like that at all and I think that's a very harsh reality about growing up. Um, and I think it's important that we address those things. You know, I think it's it's interesting how kids are always like, you know, don't take drugs or alcohol. And, you know, we tell children not to do that. And then adults will continue to do drugs and alcohol. And obviously it's very different. Not very different. It's a little bit different considering, like, you know, developmental age and everything. But alcohol isn't great. And so, again, I think it's just... We sort of talk down and condescend children as if they're so much worse than us. And I think in many ways, children have much stronger morals, are just so much more 
innocent and justice aligned than adults are and I think it's an interesting thing that this film points out is just showing the depravity of normalcy and it's effective with it as well um after this scene it's we go back to Helen where Helen is you know lamenting about just how perfect she is I don't really find Helen to be you know a convincing or remarkable character I I love women so much and I don't like unlikable women (laughs) and I find Helen to sort of just be a vapid caricature of an attractive woman and I've met a lot of attractive women and none of them are vapid so that's false but that's besides the point. Helen is just talking about how sad she is that everyone loves her and everyone thinks she's just got everything and she's like no but I I don't have everything I'm actually a fucking freak (laughs) And Helen explores a side of herself when Alan calls her, finally, and Helen is, like, all into it. She calls him back and is like, you want to come over and, like, fuck my brains out? Oh, my God. I'm rolling my eyes. But <laughs> that's what happens. It's, it's, it's kind of funny because in this film, Alan is, like, all talk. He is all high game, you know, so abrasive with his sexual perversions and a complete and utter lunatic in real life and that's always how it is the people who have like the the most disgusting sexual perversions are always the the biggest freaks in society and I can say that because I'm vanilla so that means that I'm better than everyone else here just so you know kidding obviously but we learn more about Alan and there's a side plot involving his neighbor named Christina and this is like my favorite part of the story. I love Christina so much. She has a crush on Alan and really just wants to be around him. She is always around, you know, knocking on his door and trying to just get his attention. And so she'll do anything she can to keep Alan at arm's reach, which includes gossiping about their dead doorman or just, you know, trying to talk to him no matter whenever given the opportunity to do so and I resonate so much with Christina I am such a weird girl and so odd and literally I've come to the harsh conclusion that I am just an odd freakish girl in a socially acceptable body there are a lot of attractive men who like try to pursue me and it's like why why do they like me and then they like me until they find out about my personality. <laughs> I'm not saying this to flex, but I am saying that I am a very cringeworthy person in a semi-attractive body. And that's my Joker story. But for real though, I would do the same exact thing as Christina. I have a crush. I would get so socially awkward that all I would be able to talk about is the most fucked up thing ever. I have a date next weekend, so I'll let you know how it works. I think we'll hear wedding bells in the future. The next scene in the film is where Johnny discovers blood and his feces following the sleepover with Billy. So, unfortunately and thankfully, of course it's a film so it's not real, but the police get involved and start investigating, immediately setting their sights on the adult that Johnny was with last, that being Bill. That night at dinner, Billy talks to his family about his classmate Ronald, sharing how he was lucky because he gets to stay home alone while his parents are out of town. And I'm just going to let you guess what happens next. That night, Christina asks Alan out on a date where she reveals how the dead doorman got himself dead because he assaulted Christina and so she killed him. Yas, queen, kill your motherfucking rapist. Do it. Kill Bill next. Do it. The only good rapist is a dead one. 
This is another reason I love and I resonate so much with Christina. Not only because she's an icon, but she is me. Surprise! She's actually the person who runs this podcast. Your host is Christina. And then she shares about how she cut up the doorman's body parts and put his parts into the freezer. And, you know, I really can't judge her to each their own. You know, whatever you want to do. He did, he did what he wanted to do. Do what you got to do, sissy. Like, come on. No one's hurting, okay? No one is negatively affected by what you did. I can't judge her, okay? I can only commend her. Bill is then visited by the detectives involved in Johnny's case, where Bill incriminates himself, saying, so what were we talking about, about Ronald? Where he just literally outs himself and, like, professes to, like, raping two children. Um, And then knowing of his imminent arrest, he talks to his son, Billy, one more time, where Billy then asks his dad if he would ever hurt him, because Billy is very much aware of what's happening now. Um, and he asks his dad, dad, would you ever hurt me like you did to Ronald and Johnny? And Bill's like, no, babuchka, I just jerk off instead. And then everyone applauded and threw roses at Bill for being such an amazing fodder. Fodder. Thank you, King, for not raping your own son. Pop off. The next scene is the end of the film. It happens six months later. Bill gets arrested and all three girls are with their parents in their condo commiserating about their woeful lives and misfortunes. And the film ceremoniously ends with little Billy coming in, screaming with excitement about finally being able to ejaculate. Oh. Yeah! Whoa, good job, Billy! Um, <laughs> rewatching this film has brought back many complex emotions for me because obviously it's very uncomfortable and yet it's still so well made and so enticing. Like once you start watching it, you can't stop. And I'm a person who watches a film over like a large span. I can't sit down for that long and watch it unless I'm in the theaters. But in this film, like you, you, you watch it in one sitting. It's, it's amazing. Um, and uncomfortable in a good way. It's a, such obvious filth, and I think it's kind of scary to be so dazzled by such filth, but I think it's redeemable because it has a lot of social commentary tied into it. And so I do have a lot to say about this, but before we fully analyze everything, I have one more quick film I want to quickly dissect before we wrap this all up. And the last film we're discussing today is probably my second favorite Salons film besides Happiness, and it is Dark Horse. I love it so much because I hate it so much. Dark Horse follows the most intolerable, most woeful, most unlikable man named Abe. He's not Bill. He's not like an outwardly horrible person. He's not a pedophile. But he is a disgusting man-child. He is entitled, so bratty. He lives with his parents and continually gets whatever he wants and is just like a complete piece of shit. And he gets everything he wants, including Miranda. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with liking toys as as an adult. Like, I can't speak to that. I love my sunny angels, my Sylvanian families, my cutie babies. But while it's never wrong to, like, enjoy toys, every horrible person enjoys toys. It, I mean, it doesn't work both ways, but it is it is a coincidence. <laughs> um, now, Miranda is a... the the you know, the love interest to Abe, you could say. She's not that into Abe. She is, like a lot of other women, just sort of uncomfortable with the men around her, so she tries to appease them and sort of just 
pacify them, and Abe cannot be pacified. Miranda is depressed and not doing well. She moved back to her hometown following a failed job and a divorce and is just sort of desperate, I guess you could say, and unwilling to say no. So despite Miranda being totally out of Abe's league, and that's kind of like the entire premise of this film, is just Abe continuously getting what he wants, including Miranda, despite everything being way too good for him. Um, He sets her sights on her and refuses to take no for an answer. In the film, he coerces Miranda to go on a date with him, and she is just so kind and so sweet and so in, like incapable of saying no to anything. You know, even on their date, he goes and, you know, on a tangent, just saying how much of a dark horse he is, and he's such a knight in shining armor. And then he decides to make the bold move to propose marriage. Now, me, I have like this irrational fear of getting proposed to because I feel like the second I get proposed to, there's no going back. I like I I know that I'm gonna say yes. If a random person came up to me and proposed to me, I would feel obligated to say yes, and that is entirely irrational. But for some reason, that terrifies me. <laughs> so this really plays into my real fear. Not because I have like a fear of commitment, but because I am afraid of like getting myself out of said commitment. I have like this horrible irrational fear of like getting in a relationship that I cannot get out of for some reason. Um, so, you know, relatable, this is horrifying, (laughs) but Miranda initially turns down Abe's proposal, you know, a few days later, she agrees to marry him, you know, feeling like she couldn't do better than Abe and still being in denial because of her divorce from her ex. And there's this really funny dynamic going on, you know, like Burr and Hamilton. Well, in Dark Horse, it's like Abe and Mahmood. Mahmood is Miranda's ex-boyfriend or ex-husband. And there's this weird ass, like, there. this film is weird. It's weird. And yeah, I love it. <laughs> it's so intolerable. But Abe hates Mahmood because he had Miranda before him. He hates Mahmood because he runs the toy store that Abe likes to go to. And Abe is such a Karen. Like, he is just so entitled in every way. He will literally go to the toy store and like, this isn't the, this isn't the life of condition you could give me. Stuff like that. Well... <laughs> At the end of the film, it's pretty much, I mean, again, like, there's not a ton of truly fantastical things that happen in the film. It really is just real life playing through. It's sort of like a slice of life. I forgot what, um, kind of like a mumblecore film. A lot of what happens is through the dialogue rather than actual events happening. Um, but he goes to Mahmood and sees that he runs the joint and, you know, is furious that he does it. And so he tries to return his toy, is denied to. And then when he's walking in the parking lot, he gets ran over. (laughs) And then we find him in the hospital, surrounded by his family and Miranda. Miranda says to him that he's been in a a coma for two months after being hit by the car. And then Miranda says, you know, I don't love you, but I care about you. And that's why I'm here. And then he dies. Which, you know, great. (laughs) The film ends with Abe walking around in his world posthumously observing life. And he realizes that Miranda has moved on and now married Abe's brother, having a child with him. Only Abe's legacy being his headstone reading Abe Daddy's Dark Horse. (laughs) Now, again, nothing really crazy happens in a lot of his films. I think they're just really intense and interesting character studies on, you know, the middle class experience and just character studies of woeful people that everyone seems to know. 
Um, and I feel like for where happiness is so darkly sardonic and serious, Dark Horse is so unserious and so fucking goofy. And it's so enjoyable and intolerable so much so. And yet, I love it so much. And I think it's just very frustrating to see the person who you hate the most get exactly what they could ever want. And that's what a lot of what happens in real life too. So... Now that we've talked a little bit about a few of his films, I want to dissect and analyze about what all of this means, because it does mean something. A lot of people have agreed to say that Solance's films have been described as exposing the dark underbelly of the working class, but I fervently disagree with this statement. Solance's films are not chronicling a few instances of the working class. It's not the underbelly, it's the whole cuerpo of the working class. I'd go as far to say that well, any society in which there's differing levels of existence is fucked up. And the working class is the same way. Um, and it, it goes further than just what's examined in the films. Solange's films don't just share the stories of a few poor instances. They expose the system that creates them. This is a function of society. I think that in capitalism, a lot of the only ways that people can live and be fine with the lives that they're living is to partake in debauchery. I think that modern day life is so woeful and I think that people are so miserable after having to work for so long that they partake in just such forms of degeneracy because they feel as if there's nothing about it. And I've, I've had that feeling a lot too. I mean, the way that work is structured and the way that capitalism fucks us over sets us up for failure it sets us up to do horrible things because we have to prioritize short forms of joy like sex, like alcohol, like porn, rather than actually trying to live a healthy life because it's, it's, it's incompatible. To live in capitalism and to be happy living in capitalism are really two things that cannot coexist. And I think that's where a lot of his inspiration comes from and I see this a lot in society as well I think that when given any wiggle room regarding in economics humans partake in hedonism not only because they're allowed to but because they feel forced to because of just how miserable life is at any level in any class but I think it definitely does I don't see the lower class partaking in such forms of ethical debauchery I guess you could say um and I, I mean this is where you know, where the lower class might, their their form of hedonism might exist in like, oh, an occasional cup of coffee or seeing a film at the dollar theater or enjoying the chocolate bar that goes on sale. When more money is added to the equation, more chances for hedonism um, to exist. More money and more power exists. The middle class's hedonism exists more in scales like drugs, strippers, porn, insider trading, trading, alcoholism, female exploitation, and truly partaking in socially acceptable forms of degeneracy. And this is why Todd Solance's films are so powerful, because what is more American than this? The middle class is quintessentially American. And because the largest you know, group of Americans that we feel represented by that represent America partake in this form of debauchery. His work is really transcendent and relatable to a lot of people who watch it, if not everyone, because everyone can relate to these experiences, which, I mean, says a lot about society. 
And I think that they resonate with so many because they hit so close to home, you know, whether or not you want to admit it. Who doesn't personally know a fucking pervert? Who doesn't know a young tween girl unsure of her place in this world? Who doesn't personally know a pathetic man child who literally gets everything he wants? Who doesn't know a girl who is so afraid of telling the truth and being honest with herself that she gets herself stuck in a loveless and fruitless relationship? All of these archetypes are so infuriating and so traumatizing because they are so real. We know these people. We might be these people. I mentioned how I resonate with Christina. She's fucked up, but she's me in a sense. And I'm, I, I resonate far more with Todd Salon's characters than I do with any superhero, than with any Christopher Nolan character, than with any other character that we see on screen because they are fantastical and we are not. And that's okay. But I feel like so often we see film as a form of escapism rather than to a mirror. And I think that when film can mirror our flaws and can show us what's wrong with the way that we live, I think it can be really powerful. And he's proven that. Salons is odd and fucked up, but he is aware of the lives of those who watch his films. And he is has, you know, maintained a sense of normalcy and down-to-earth quality that a lot of other directors haven't. He is not disillusioned by the success he has and has not lost taste or awareness of what's going on in the world. And I feel like a lot of directors have lost that. You know, for an example, Christopher Nolan and his films can be really good, but they are about fantastical people. And many of us are not amazing, again, and that's okay. But it's far more resonant to resonant to see the examples that we relate to that are maybe a little bit more insulting rather than to see the examples that are entirely unattainable. And I think it's funny because a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, I'm the fucking Joker. And sorry to break it to you, incels. You're not the Joker. You're Abe. And that's a bajillion times worse. <laughs> I've wanted to make this episode for a very long time and I feel like I've had so much to say and even now I feel like I haven't said everything that I've wanted to say but I hope that at least something that I've said has resonated or expanded a viewpoint whether or not you've known about him I hope that I can introduce you to things that you're not yet aware of because I feel like that's the point of film is to be introduced to things and ideas that you aren't already aware of and I find that to be very exciting I I love hearing different viewpoints I love hearing different perspectives on things and I hope that I can help provide that for you as well I think it's also an important time to talk about this as well because Salons is going to have a new film coming out soon one of which I am very excited for and I've been anticipating for a very long time it's called Love Child and it will start shooting this spring this film sounds amazing It has Elizabeth Olsen and Charles Melton in it and has a very interesting premise involving a mother to a Broadway star wannabe. And this child has, you know, an Oedipus complex. He's infatuated with his mother, like loves her in a creepy way (laughs) and which causes the child to attempt to commit to murder his father. And it sounds wonderful and horrible. And it'll be interesting to see if this gets a theatrical release. I am not sure of that. I've lived throughout most of Todd Salonz's film career but I've never recalled you know seeing his films in the theater and even on streaming sites you know you you really can't find his stuff there so it'll be interesting to see how this one is received because I can live through it firsthand Um, and I hope that it gets the appreciation that it deserves and that Salons gets that as well. You know that of course when it comes out we will of course be reveling in the beautiful filth that he creates. I don't worship too many men 
other than like God and Captain Beefheart. But I guess now we have to add Todd Salons to that list as well. Mwah.